0: Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the bulletin says we'll read verses 14 to 27, I want to begin though at verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is God's word, now concerning spiritual gifts brethren I would not have you ignorant, Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away into these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy, Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. You could translate that for the common good. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one, and hath many members," it's talking about the human body now. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, And have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say. Because I am not the hand. I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Now children pay careful attention here. To these questions. Let me reread verse 15. Think about. The different members of your body. Speaking to the other members. The foot. Speaking to the hand and so forth. Listen in verse 15. If the foot shall say, Because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body, Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, Where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, Where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon them, these, we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And that's how far we read the Scripture this morning. Call your attention to Lord's Day 21 in the Catechism again. This time we treat question and answer 55. In the back of the Psalter, on page 12, we have Lord's Day 21 as the Heidelberg Catechism is working through the confession that the churches make in the Apostles' Creed. We are up to the confession in question 54 the Holy Catholic Church, and in question 55, the communion of saints. And then in a couple of weeks, God willing, we'll treat 56, the forgiveness of sins. This morning, 55, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of Him and all His riches. And gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. Notice that there are two explanations of the communion of saints one is a reality, we are in common partakers of Christ, and the second is a duty. We must use our gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. If you were to choose from all of the Scripture twelve fundamental doctrines without which you could not make a good confession of Christianity, which doctrines would you choose? Now, of course, you say you would have in view the doctrine of God as Father and Creator, of course, the doctrine of the Son come in the flesh as Redeemer who, as the Apostles' Creed helps us see, lived in a state of humiliation was born and died, suffered and died and so forth, and then exaltation and include those elements. And you would say, yes, I will not fail to see the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Probably you would say, do not forget the forgiveness of sins, and do not forget the life everlasting. And maybe if you're thinking carefully, you would say, one of these twelve must be the church of Jesus Christ. But would you as one of those fundamental 12 add this one, the communion of saints. But here it is in the ancient ecumenical creed that everyone agrees are not the only, but probably some of the most basic articles of the Christian faith. Here it is, one of the 12, the communion of saints. We need to do justice to the communion of saints as to what it is and as to what our duty with regard to it is. When we do that, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And we honor Christ's Spirit. And we honor the church. We honor the church, first of all, because it's right after we confess that there is a church, that there is a communion of saints in that church. I remember years ago, one of the seminary professors preached in a vacancy when I was a member of that church in seminary. He said, you may never confess the Apostles' Creed except you do it this way. You run together those two articles. I believe the Holy and Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Don't pause between your confession of the church and your confession of the communion of saints because they're so intimately related. Where there is a church, there is the communion of saints. And insofar as we honor the church, we will honor the communion of saints. Or if I may flip that around, insofar as we dishonor the communion of the saints... We are not doing justice to our confession of the church. The communion of saints is related to our confession of the church. The communion of saints is related to our confession of the the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit and Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness, all of the rest of the Apostles' Creed now flows out of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that gathers the church, and it's the Spirit that creates in the church the unity of the communion of saints. And so I may say again, insofar as we honor the Spirit, we honor His work of uniting the church in a communion. And we may reverse that too insofar as we dishonor the communion of saints, we are dishonoring the Spirit in one of His crowning works. The third, and this is most important, the communion of saints is related to Jesus. Now let's put it all together. God the Father created the worlds as a stage as it were for God the Son to come and redeem a people out of a broken, dark world and bring them into the church God the Father created God the Son redeemed and now God the Father and Son through the Spirit gathering the church together are creating this body this body Grace Protestant Reformed Church and this body the Protestant Reformed Churches in America and these bodies other true churches in the world in order that we may live in a communion that shares the life of our Lord Jesus. Let's do justice to this fundamental truth of the communion of saints and never forget that when the church in its early days was thinking about the fundamentals, it included this one, this one. And then before the sermon proper, I want to remind you that the communion of the saints is a reality and it is a duty. And we're going to be explaining and emphasizing both this morning. We're going to come to the duty. And we're going to do that not only because the catechism says it, but because the catechism says it with its eye on the Scripture. It's striking how the catechism puts it, secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty to employ his gifts readily, cheerfully for the advantage and salvation of the other members. Keep that in mind this morning. Are you using your gifts and am I using my gifts for the advantage and the salvation of the other members? Catechism does that because Ephesians teaches that and because First Corinthians teaches that and because all of the Bible teaches that look at the book of Ephesians this afternoon if you would and see how on the doctrinal foundation of that book is built the teaching of the church and it begins by saying keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and then there's a certain conduct that keeps that unity And then spend a half an hour or an hour and read all the way through 1 Corinthians and see this is what the Apostle is aiming at too in this book. There is a body that must not be fractured and you and I are all responsible for the fracturing of that body if it is and for the unity of that body when that is too. So let's see this morning the duty of the communion of saints. See in the first place the meaning of that, in the second place the threats to that, and in the third place how we live that, that is how that comes to expression among us. The meaning of that, the threats to that, and the expression of it. Let me begin by asking you a question, what do all of these words that I'm going to list now have in common? Communism. Commune, community, and communion. When you children think of communion, you immediately look to your right and see that table there where we celebrate what's sometimes called the Lord's Supper, but sometimes called communion. Why is that supper called communion? And then ask, why is that political philosophy called communion? communism and why when members of a cult live together they live together in what is called a commune and why when sometimes in rural America there's one gas station one grocery store one little post office you call that a community and when you think about that it all makes sense communism Is that political philosophy that teaches that no one owns any private property? This is the ideal, allegedly, and that everyone shares equally all of the property. They share the property. A commune is a compound where everyone lives together and they all share one life. Probably they all wear the same kind of clothing. They eat out of the same community kitchen. And maybe they share things that they ought not share, but that's the idea of a commune and a community. They all shop at the same grocery store, go to the same post office, get gas at the same gas station. They are a community. They share this little life together and communion now we're coming closer to the idea that we have before us communion is that we all share the life of our Lord Jesus Christ symbolized in the bread that's broken of the same loaf we all eat and the wine that's poured out from the same cup we all drink we share in the life of Christ now the communion of the Saints We understand better because it simply means that we all share in something the same, and that is the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. You reread the Catechism, we are in common, that's the language of the creed, partakers of Him. You are a partaker of Him. Your children are partakers of Him. You and you and I are partakers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have in common. Not our physical possessions. The political philosophy of communism is not biblical. Not the same kitchen where we all live together in a compound. That's not the biblical teaching either. But this is the biblical teaching of real community and communion. We all have the Lord Jesus Christ's life. Now understand that clearly, it's not simply that we all share the same ideas that He had, though we do, as though we get together like some people get together who are the fans of John Lennon and have meetings regularly to worship as it were, some former rock star or dead idol. But we have this in common. Not only that we think the way he thought, but that we have his life itself. That's why Paul confesses in Galatians 2, the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Christ lives in me and you and your children by faith. And so the Apostle says in the chapter that we read in verse 13, By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. One Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, so that His life is mine and yours. The foundation of that communion is the truth of His Word. Let's not forget that either. When Jesus said to His disciples, I'm going to send you My Spirit, He called the Spirit the Spirit of truth. And when He made a good confession before one of the civil rulers in His days, in John 18, He said in verse 37, You say that I'm a king. He said to Pilate, to this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Now that comes out in 1 Corinthians 12 that we read too. The passage began this way, you know that you are Gentiles. And that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ gathered you into the church so that you could make a confession that no one else makes. And that confession is, Jesus Christ is Lord. See that in verse 3? No man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. You make that confession, they make this confession. Jesus Christ is accursed. Everyone who has the Spirit of Jesus Christ says, Jesus Christ is Lord. And everyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, the life of Christ in him, says Jesus Christ is accursed. That distinguishes you from those who do not share the life of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand that either. It's not required simply that we say Jesus Christ is Lord and for the rest it doesn't matter so that you're one with everyone who simply speaks those few words. And then according to that view, you may say anything you want about Jesus. He died for everybody, He wants to save everyone. But other than that, you just need to say Jesus is Lord. Well, the fact of the matter is that if you say that He died for everybody but not everybody is saved, Jesus is not Lord. And the fact of the matter is if He wants to save everybody and doesn't save everybody, then He's not Lord. A Lord does what He wills to do. So, the confession of truth is a manifestation of the reality that we are partakers of the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit and what a, what a wonderful work that is. Think about that now for a moment. Reflect on that. From the beginning to the end of the world the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ has been plucking out of the darkness and bringing into the light this one and another one out of the darkness and into the light that one and another one and his family out of the darkness into the light. From the beginning to the end of the world, the Spirit of Christ has been doing that. And then not only having gathered the church of Jesus Christ, but having made them one so that we are in common. We have the most important thing in common. Reflect on that for a moment. What a marvel that is. It's like the marvel of the Spirit in creation. And that's why we prayed about that again at the beginning of the congregational prayer, the Spirit makes life to abound. What a marvel that is. Even after the curse has disrupted so much, I was able to look out my back window this morning and see the rabbits running, the deer coming up to feed at the bird feeders, the turkeys displaying all of their beauty, and the trees blossoming and everything just a marvel. And you say, what a, what a work it is that the Holy Spirit does. He wasn't pleased, you see, simply to create all of the different things in this vast universe. Not just the world, but all of the stars and the planets and all of the rest. He wasn't pleased just to make all of these things, but He was pleased to coordinate them and harmonize them so that they live together in unity and one relates to the other in a way that affects the other. And so it is in the church of Christ. He didn't determine merely to pluck you out of darkness and bring you into church so that you had no relation to the other members of the congregation. But He was pleased to gather you here so that you are fitted with every other member and relate to every other member so that what you do affects you. And what you fail to do Affects them. That's how God made the Church of Christ. So we have a a calling here. And the calling is that we ought to be active and participate in that great work of gathering the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I made this application last week. Let's make it again. This church and every member needs to be keenly interested in the Spirit's work of bringing out of darkness into the light people. God's elect. Let's be busy in that. And then, having brought them here, let's be extra busy and cautious that they find their place and are active in their place and that we in our place so that there's no schism in this body. It's an effort to gather It is also an effort to maintain the unity in this gathered body. But then in the end, let's remember that we can't do it. The Spirit can. Only the Spirit can. Now, that's the communion, but we call this the communion of the saints, The saints, those that share the life of Christ, believing in Him, united to Him by faith, confessing His name, will manifest that life in that we don't want to be a part of that darkness any longer. We want to be a part of the light And we want to live as children of the light and not as children of the darkness. That's where that expression comes from. This is a communion of saints, of those who love the Lord Jesus, depend on Him for everything, and live His life so that they hate sin and love the right. Communion of the saints. The negative part of that confession is that we don't have communion with those who aren't saints. We don't have fellowship with those who aren't believers. We are not a part of a community of those who don't confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, outwardly, there is such a community. Some of you may live in Standale, some of you in Marne or Coopersville, others others of you in other communities around here. And there may be a certain kind of fellowship that you have in that community. You see them in the grocery store and at the gas station and so forth. And you have some things in common with them. But you do not have the most important thing in common with them. And that's why the, world, the Word of God says in the next book to Corinthians, what fellowship do you have with darkness? What communion do you have with those who don't confess Christ? You don't. You not only may not, you cannot. And if you attempt to establish that communion, you are violating in one of the most fundamental ways who you are. You do not have communion with unbelievers. Now, we need to be very, very careful here, and I'll express that caution in a moment. That doesn't mean that we may be friendly to them. It doesn't mean that we may have association with them. It simply means we are not shares of their life. We aren't, and they aren't with ours. You either make the confession Jesus Christ is Lord, or you make the confession Jesus Christ is accursed. Accursed. This is what the Reformed churches for many generations have called the antithesis. The antithesis. If any of you have any contact with Rudlands, as I do, and a few of you do, then you know that one of the old stalwarts in Rudlands who taught Sunday school year after year always was emphasizing that doctrine. And in his old Dutch brogue, spoke of the antitasis, the antitasis, And so we Sunday school children never forgot the importance of the antitasis. That's how you pronounce it in Dutch. And what he was teaching is the biblical truth that there is a spiritual separation between you who are believers and those who aren't. You need to live that out. You need to manifest that. It's my calling to read and reread Psalm 101 and the confession that all of us make from the Old Testament too they will not be my friends they will not be my servants they will not be my companions my companions will be the faithful in the land and only them the God made separation That's spiritual, not necessarily physical, because if you try to come out of them completely, then you have to live in a commune and put a fence around it and have no contact with them. And Paul warns about that in the fifth chapter of this book when he says, you mustn't try to come out of the world. I didn't say you may have any contact with unbelievers because then you would have to come out of the world. I said, don't have spiritual fellowship with them. Don't wrap your life up with their lives. You understand, this is why we've always been opposed to that doctrine that's so common in even conservative Christianity today called common grace. Now there you have that word common that you find in Communism and community and commune. The doctrine of common grace is the teaching that God has grace not only for you, but God has grace for the unbeliever. And when God has grace for the unbeliever, you say, when you look at that unbeliever, you and I have something in common, something very important in common, the grace of God we have in common. And therefore, here's the conclusion of that teaching I may have not only communion with you but I may cooperate with you in very important works that are spiritual we've always opposed the teaching of common grace for other reasons too but for this also because of the practical effect it has with the lives of the people of God what you have in common with the unbeliever is not grace What I have in common with the unbeliever is my sinful, carnal, depraved nature. And that does not enable me to live with him and have fun with him and vacation with him and all of the rest. Isn't it striking that that's not more plain to the people of God? Because this teaching of the communion of saints, that's the point we're making now, is not uniquely Protestant, Reformed, or even Reformed, but uniquely Christian. Remember, all the way back to the time of the Apostles, this creed was written up. The communion that we have is with the saints. The saints. Now, back to the qualification and the carefulness here. That does not mean that we aren't friendly to the unbelievers. If we aren't friendly to unbelievers, we show that we don't know very much about Christianity. This does not mean that we may not have contact with unbelievers. If we don't want contact with unbelievers, then we show we don't know very much about Christianity either. We ought to be the friendliest people to unbelievers that the unbelievers have ever met. And in the contact that we have with unbelievers, we ought to be willing to share in a very friendly way the hope that's in us So that perhaps they would ask us and we can say, the hope I have is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's looking out with regard to the communion of saints. But now let's look in and see the importance of the communion that we have. And then we'll go on to the second point very quickly. Is with everyone. Everyone. All of us being members of Christ are in common. That means you, who are very different than you, can have a fellowship that is striking. Perhaps that can be made plain by asking you to think for a moment of the member of the congregation that probably is most different from you than anyone. Not that you don't like, but that is so different from you that you say, from an earthly point of view, I have nothing in common. Maybe the men will choose women, the married will choose single people, the old people will choose young, the rich will say, I'm not very much in common with the poor, those who've got a college degree, not very much in common with those who just graduated from eighth grade. You think of the person or kind of person in this congregation with whom you have the least in common, the very least. And then say to yourself, I have in common with them the most important thing in all of the world. I, a male who am married and a father of children and grandfather, have in common with you who are unmarried, a female, or whatever the differences may be, this one fundamental thing. I and you have the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to emphasize that too. There's something strange, perhaps not wrong, but maybe we could reflect someday and say it's wrong, that we have Bible studies for the men and another Bible study for the women and one Bible for the study for the misters and misses in the world and Another Bible study for the junior Mr. and Mrs., and one for the senior Mr. and Mrs., and perhaps another Bible study for the young people. Now, that's not wrong, but think about what that might do to fellowship in the church. The young people think they ought to live their own life and not pay attention to the old. The married have their own community and not company with the single, and so forth. We ought to do in every way that we can not to put that kind of emphasis on certain groups after church either. It's not the married women who stand around together talking and the unmarried somewhere else because the married all they talk about is the children that they have and the unmarried about something different the men of a certain age in this group and of a different age in that group, a family group in this circle and a different family group in there. I sometimes imagine, though, if I I were your pastor, I might dare, but not being your pastor, I certainly wouldn't dare. I sometimes imagine suggesting that after church, all of you who stand there, half of you go stand there And all of you who stand there, half of you go stand and everyone mix together and find out about the needs and use your gifts for the advantage and salvation of all the other members. And do that in Bible study too. And do that in retreats and conventions too instead of a young people's convention or maybe in addition to it. And instead of an old people's convention, maybe in addition to it, we have family Conferences so that the old are with the young and the young are with the old and everyone together this is our commonality Jesus Jesus now there are threats to that communion the reality is we are one body we share in Christ and the duty that we have is to use our gifts for the advantage and salvation of all the other members Now, there are threats to that communion of the saints. Three of them I want to have in view now for a few minutes. Number one, a departure in doctrine. That addresses what unites us, first of all, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, a departure in Christian living, and that addresses the reality of the communion of the saints that we share the life of Christ. And he didn't live in sin. And then third, I want to address the threats that come out of the chapter that we read where some members look down on other members in pride and other members look at other in the congregation in envy. So first of all, the threat of doctrinal division. Remember, division is the point that the Apostle is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 12. In fact, it's the point he's making in almost all of the book You remember early in the book, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Some of you are following this minister, others are following that minister. Is Christ divided? Was I crucified for you? Paul is addressing schism. There must not be a rending of the unity in the body. And he comes back to that in chapter 12. So that's the subject. And one of the ways in which the church can be rent and divided is by this group confessing this doctrine and that group confessing a different doctrine. And when this group departs from the truth of the word, they are responsible for dividing the church. And that group who objects to their departure is not to be blamed for the division in the church. They are to be commended for defending the faith. And that's the explanation for different denominations. Two cannot walk together except they be agreed as to their confession. So what unites us, this backs up now in this first part of the second point, what unites us is that we all say, Jesus is Lord. And that means... And we spell that out in creeds based on the Bible. And when someone departs from that confession in the creed, they are dividing the church. What unites us is not how friendly we are. Although again, the church that does make that confession is friendly and the church that isn't friendly shows itself that they aren't Christians. A church that doesn't show itself friendly shows That there is a fundamental weakness in their understanding of Christianity. But you don't base unity on friendliness because the cults are friendly. You want to go to a friendly place? Join a commune. This is how the cult leaders have the ability to lure the young people in college who are on the edge, as it were, by their big smile and their friendly demeanor. That's not what unites us. What unites us is truth. Truth. And I say again, this is the explanation of different denominations. Perhaps you think, well, Protestant Reformed, we're a little denomination, and maybe we ought to be a part of a big denomination. But I want to remind you that denominational beginnings all started because of this. Almost all of them started because of this. Go back to the Reformation. What caused Luther to call a group out of Roman Catholicism with him because of the Roman Catholic denial of justification by faith and all kinds of other corruptions in the Roman Catholic Church. Who was responsible for dividing the church there? Roman Catholic Church said, Luther, you fractured the body. Luther said, no, we maintain the body. You left the truth. Now that's one of the first divisions in the church. But think just in our country with regard to different denominations. Some of you are familiar with the OPC. They're one of the first conservative denominations that came out of the big liberal United Presbyterian churches in the United States in 1936. The OPC. Why? Because the big liberal denominations had gradually departed from the truth and the OPC wanted to maintain the truth. Who was at fault? Not the OPC. Or a generation later, the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, in 1973, also came out of those big liberalizing denominations and wanted to be conservative. Why? Because the big denominations had gradually left the truth. And where did the Christian Reformed Church begin? In 1857, they began because part of the Reformed Church in America, they couldn't abide being because the Reformed Church in America rejected important truths of the gospel. They didn't want the full of the canons of Dort. They didn't want to preach the Heidelberg Catechism and so forth. So the Christian Reformed Church came out. was at fault for this division and now you come to 1924 and why we began as an independent denomination you understand because we needed to maintain truth this is what unites us we walk together because we are agreed we're not perfect that's not our claim we want to read the scripture as carefully as we can and be as faithful to the Lord Jesus because he's the truth, he's the way, he's the life, but he's also the truth. We want to be faithful to him. The second threat is ungodliness in living. Those of us who are in Christ want to walk together by the same rule. It's not only our confession that unites us, but it's our conduct that that unites us. Paul said in the earlier part of this book, that man who had an affair with his stepmother, you put him out and have no fellowship with him. No fellowship. Put out from among you that evildoer. And that's the Bible's testimony that unity is not only a unity of our confession, but a unity of our conduct, life. Now let's be very careful here too don't make your rules of what you think Christian conduct is because they're going to be different than their rules as to what they think Christian conduct is. We're not going to divide over insignificant matters like do you wear a black suit and a tie to church? Do you walk on Sunday afternoon down a nice path or do you stay home and read all day? Be careful that you don't make your own rules as to what Christian conduct is. Oh, you pray with you and your, and you pray with thee and thou, and we're not going to fellowship with you who pray and address God differently. Be very careful that you do not invent your standards for what unites the church. There are differences, and we may have those differences, Paul acknowledged that in this book too. Some ate meat offered to idols and said, that doesn't bother us at all, it's just meat. And others said, oh, we can't eat meat offered to idols. And they began contending with each other. And Paul addressed them and said, you may live together. You who have that kind of conscience may live with that conscience. and You who have a different conscience may live with that conscience. This is what binds us, the Ten Commandments, and the clear teachings of the Scriptures. And when those are violated, then we take that fornicator, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, and put him out. You don't do that individually. I may do that privately, and say I'm going to excommunicate you. I'm not going to have fellowship with you anymore. But we do that together. And as a body... We work, beginning with Matthew 18, usually, going to the consistory, and then the whole congregation puts him out and says, we don't have fellowship with you anymore so that you may be ashamed, and we pray for you that you may be brought back, and we can have that kind of communion again. That's a threat. Ungodliness of life. But this is a threat, too, in the third place. What Paul addresses in 1st Corinthians 12, pride on the part of those who think that they are something and envy on the part of those who imagine themselves to be unimportant. We as churches usually do pretty well with doctrine and maintaining unity of doctrine And we as churches, by the grace of God, have usually done pretty well with regard to putting out of our fellowship those who do not live according to God's rule in discipline. And we put up big walls there, rightly so. There's another wall that we need to put up and be very careful that we maintain, and that's the wall of avoiding pride and avoiding envy. The pride of the head saying to the foot, I don't need you. And the eye saying to the ear, I don't need you. And the jealousy of the hand saying, because I'm not the eye, I'm not a part of the body. Pride and envy. Let's be very, very careful. Parents go home with your children and talk about this today. We all have our place we all have our place no one does not have a place the office bearers have their place they're visible the ministers usually have the most visible place but every single one of you has his and her place a very important place I sometimes like to think of the appendix Many years ago I had my appendix taken out and I asked the doctor after the surgery what use is the appendix and he said we don't know it probably doesn't have any use must be some evolutionary vestige of our development but I am sure that when we get to heaven we're going to find out what place the appendix has I've talked to doctors lately they have some guesses probably some pretty good guesses but the appendix has a place and you who think you're only an appendix must know you have your place. And the emphasis of the passage is that we think these members to be less honorable. And there are some members of the body which seem to be more feeble. There's the apostle by the spirits putting us on notice. That's what you think. That's what appears to be to you. But that's not truth every single member even a fingernail you have a finger that doesn't have a fingernail you know it it's important to you and maybe I'm just a fingernail maybe I'm just an appendix but every member in the body is important and you who think that you are insignificant God bestows abundant honor upon you and uses you and you will know about that when we come to glory and you who think that you are more honorable, be very, very careful, people of God. What do you have that you haven't received? You're an eye, you're a head, you're a hand. Every member is necessary. So let's live that way, shall we? Let's express the life of the church in the way that we ought to express it. Reread 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the exhortations embedded in that chapter are first be active in the church be very active look for a place to serve when you are active in the second place have a care for all of the other members Paul ends this section talking about one member suffering all of the other members suffer with it and he talks about one member rejoicing all of the other members rejoice with them And so we have in the bulletin, and I feel bad that I forgot to pray about that. All of you who are graduating, 8th grade, 12th grade, college, we rejoice with you. We're thankful to God that He gave you that ability. Now let's, shall we, as much as we can, express that joy with them. Somebody has a baby, somebody adopts a child, let's rejoice with them. We often sorrow with those who grieve and that's a good thing. But let's all find our place and use our gifts for the well-being of the others. That's why I prayed this morning for the janitors and the bulletin clerks and those who volunteer on the evangelism committee and the building committee and maybe aren't even on committees but they always show up when there's a work be at the church or the parsonage. Those are just little ways but very important ways of all of us showing that we are a part of the body of Christ. We are one body. And then be very careful because we all have this in us to say with this kind of attitude, nobody shows me any care. Nobody sends me sympathy card. Nobody rejoices with me when I'm sad. Now, that may be, and if it is, then let's correct that. Let's correct that. Let's make sure that there's not one person in the congregation who doesn't have the care shown to him or her by all of the other members of the congregation. But sometimes the problem with a man or woman who sits with his arms folded Complaining about lack of care is in them, and they've not exerted themselves to show a care for the other members of the body, we're one body. We've been baptized by the same Spirit into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, precious unity, unity, one, now. Let us live that unity for the glory of the church, for the honor of the Spirit, and for the manifestation of what Jesus came to do when he came to redeem us and gather us and make us his bride and his body. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we rejoice In the Church of Christ now as we finish our worship for this morning and prepare to leave this sanctuary work in each of us that each may have a care for all of the others and live not for themselves but for the rest of the members and father forgive us we are weak Sometimes our fear is because of our upbringing, our personality, but cause us to grow, that we may show that we love the other members of the church, and we are willing to give our lives in gratitude for the Lord Jesus, who gave his life. We are willing to give our lives for the good of the others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.